climate change turn us into a world of uprooted migrants? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate instability is an increasing driver of human migration, but no one identifies themselves as a climate refugee. It's a notion that doesn't have a legal meaning today. It's something that talks to our spirit, to our hearts, but you can't have a status of a climate refugee today in our world. Dina Unesco is head of the Migration, Environment and Climate Change Division at the UN Migration Agency in Geneva. She acknowledges that environmental degradation may be one among many factors driving migration. But people leaving their homelands are even less likely to cite climate as a cause. People in Central American countries, you know, if you actually ask them, why did you feel forced to leave your country? They would not tell you, oh, because of climate change. Oscar Chacon is co-founder and executive director of Alianza Americas, a network of Latin American and Caribbean immigrant organizations in the United States. Extreme cycles of drought and heavy rain have left many subsistence farmers around the world without any viable options to work and eat. Any place there's a cash crop, when that cash crop is decimated, there's no fallback plan, right? There's nothing that we can kind of do tomorrow in order to feed our families and to buy our food. Lauren Markham is author of The Faraway Brothers, Two Young Migrants and the Making of an American Life. We'll hear from her and others later in today's show. First, a conversation with a voluntary migrant out to retrace the earliest movements of human populations. In 2013, journalist Paul Solopek began his Out of Eden walk, setting out on foot from the Rift Valley of Ethiopia through the Middle East and across Central Asia. Along the way, he's documenting how people are coping with climate change and other challenges. You know, I'm following the pathways of human migration out of Africa back in the Stone Age and using that as kind of my template for talking about current events. And so I picked up um, an ancient human site about 120 kilometers north of uh, the capital, Addis Ababa, uh, called Hirtoburi. And that is in the Sahel. It's kind of a, a transition zone between pure desert and kind of grassland savanna. And as I started walking very soon, within a week or two, started bumping into evidence of, of other migrants you know, who were doing their migrations involuntarily, right? I'm a very privileged walker. I'm, I'm, I carry a, a powerful passport. I'm backed by powerful institutions, my ethnicity, my gender, everything. I, I realize this, that I'm, I'm, I'm very special. I'm not, not typical. But I began encountering other migrants on foot, inching their way across this extremely harsh environment uh, on their way to the Gulf of Aden. Why the Gulf of Aden? because that was the nearest coast that would give them access to the Arabian Peninsula and the Middle East in general. So these were migrants coming from Ethiopia, coming from Eritrea, coming from Somalia, Somaliland, and, and further afield, looking to basically rent out their muscles as laborers on, on farms in, on, in the Arabian Peninsula, places like Saudi, places like United Arab Emirates, you know, labor jobs in urban centers. And some of these people, um, were being pushed, as I began to interview them, by what became clear to me as an increasingly fickle rain pattern. Many of them were farmers. Um, many of them were from the Amharic highlands of Ethiopia. And I was telling people were telling me, we would rather die crossing this desert than sitting back on our drying farms and starving to death in situ. That was a interview that I you know, I just heard over and over. 
mainly from the young men that were on the move. There were there were young women as well. You went to Georgia, which you describe as an oasis of stability in a in a turbulent region, and then through Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, where you saw experienced epic rains. Tell us about that part of your journey. Yeah, I think once I reached um, the old Silk Roads, you know, Central Asia is, has been traversed by human migrants for millennia. And in Kazakhstan, the the winter and spring that I walked across a region of Kazakhstan, very isolated, called Mangistau. And it's this, this very high plateau, this kind of uh, vast steppe country in the west of, of, of that country. Um, the rains were, were so intense that I had interviewed um, people who were 90 years old, who had never seen the kinds of um, plants that were springing up after these rains. Two things were happening here. One is the rains were so intense that they were turning the steppe into a bog, which made them impassable. So the nomads were having trouble getting their sheep out, even into pasture, because they were getting bogged down in mud. And that created a problem for me as well. I was walking with two Kazakh gentlemen and I had a cargo horse. And we had to do all kinds of zigzags um, to kind of make our way slowly eastward towards Uzbekistan. Um, one thing. The second thing is, again, the botanical explosion after these rains was extraordinary. I mean, I, I have photographs of it where the steppe, as far as the eye can see, 360 degrees on the horizon with no interruptions. It's flat as a pancake. There's grassland as high as a horse's belly, in some cases even higher. Um, and, you know, for the pastoralists, this was like heaven. You know, they were saying we'd never seen a year like this, you know, since our grandfather's time. And again, the kind of haunting thing was that there were plants that I would point to and say, well, what's that? And they said, you know, we've never seen it before. So it could have been these seeds that were requiring massive amounts, historic quantities of rain to finally germinate. I, I just don't know. But that's, you know, hinting at the other extreme where like at least temporarily, at least, you know, taken at face value, here's climate change that might have like uh, some immediate positive, you know, impact on the local economy. You've traveled through so many different cultures and so many different places. Do you talk to people about climate? Do they have words for climate change? You know, you're talking with traders and nomads, farmers. Do they tell us about the concept they have of this? This they're so close to nature, and yet it's changing in ways they haven't seen. So when you're traveling across continents like this on foot, you cannot walk very far without encountering people. And when you encounter people on foot, as opposed to being in a motor vehicle, you can't just blow them off. You can't just you know, walk by them and not say anything. You, you, you engage them. You, have a, you, know, you say hello, you're polite. You, you might have a, a you know, very brief conversation or a very lengthy conversation, as the case may be. It's the opposite of lonely. It's the opposite of solitary kind of you know, walking the earth alone. It's, it's been one of the most social parts of my life. I have a dozen conversations at least a day, sometimes dozens. You know, in India, where there's a village every 1.5 kilometers, you talk to an awful lot of people. And I don't have to raise the issue of climate change. I don't. Even from the very beginning of this project, almost seven years ago, it came up spontaneously. If you're talking to people who are living in rural economies, who depend on the land, who depend on farming or pastoralism, they bring it up. I say, how's it going? I say, hey, it's okay. It's all right. Or, you know, generally it's not all right. You talk to any farmer, whether it's in Iowa or Ethiopia, they always complain. That's the way farmers are. I have farmers in my family. <laughs> but now it's it's like, you know what? Things are really strange. Isn't, isn't it kind of weird how, you know, 
early the rains came or how they're not coming or how um, much runoff there is this year from the mountains or how little there is. And so it comes up. If there's a suite of, of like topics, conversations, as you're walking across the earth and you engage total strangers, they fall into certain categories across culture, language, religion. It's I'm not loved enough or I'm loving the wrong person or somebody doesn't love me back. Um, that's one kind of theme. Another is, you know, I hate the boss. Um, and the boss could be the government. It could be, you know, it's the guy who's like paying your salary or not. Um, and the third is, isn't the weather mighty odd? I mean, that comes up again and again. And so these, I've had variations on these conversations, I, I, I think thousands of times. And it could be just a few words or it could be really long. You know, if I'm doing a formal kind of interview for a story, I can get quite detailed. It's everywhere. There is absolutely no disputing it. And underneath that, uh, is there fear, mystery, curiosity? What are the emotions underneath these people are living a lot closer to nature than most people who listen to this radio show and podcast? Is there, and I'm sure it's a range, but what's what's the feeling underneath when you encounter people is like, oh, because some farmers I've talked to is like, my daddy got through the Dust Bowl and we will too. You know, we, you know we're hardy people. We're used to being whiplashed by mother nature, but is this different? The underlying tenor of all of these conversations is anxiety. The ones that I've had, to some some tinge, some color of anxiety, even if you're benefiting. And I'll give you an example. Um, I walked through the Wahan Corridor, a very remote salient of, of Afghanistan that kind of juts like a finger from the northeast up to touch on China. And it's kind of all, it's a big um, montane valley that's hemmed by the Pamirs and hemmed by the Hindu Kush and the Karakoram Range. Very beautiful, very remote, very few roads. As I walked through that region, I was commenting and, and, and um, complimenting the farmers on their orchards. They had beautiful new apricot trees were blooming and there seemed to be a lot of kind of agricultural activity. New, new crops were going in, vegetable crops for the first time. And they were saying, yeah, they said, you know, we've had more water than we've ever had before. And also the trees are flowering higher up earlier because it's warmer in the spring. And we have this, we're kind of in this golden era of kind of agriculture in a place that had been kind of a cold desert, pretty marginal. So that went, you know, again, from warfare in the Horn of Africa to a place that was kind of like turned into an oasis, a Garden of Eden by climate change. But even there, if you spent enough time with the farmers and just listened to them talk all night, there was an underlying anxiety knowing that they were living on borrowed time because the water surplus was coming from glaciers that were melting unnaturally fast. And that even worse times were ahead because once those glaciers were gone, the place is going to be even drier than ever. So their kind of philosophy was, you know, we're going to take it while we get it with no guarantees of what comes next. Of all the places you've walked through, what concerns you the most for climate migration? If you think, wow, when this water comes or, or too much or too little or something that is happening now continues to in, in motion, when these people go on the move, boy, this is really going to be quite a mi human migration. India, without question, without question. The scale of the problem is so big that it invites denial from the farmer all the way up to the government minister. It is so huge. A recent study commissioned by the government of India itself revealed that 
up to 600 million people in India live in water crisis. And some of it's water quality, but a lot of it's just access to water. 600 million. That's twice the population of the United States. And it's not looking any better, right? It's, it's going the opposite direction. So that is, a, to me, the biggest sort of climate change-linked resource uh, crisis in the world that we're facing. It's a time bomb. Journalist Paul Solopek describing some of the forces that are fueling human migration. You're listening to Climate One. Coming up, we'll hear how the impacts of climate change, security, and mobility sometimes go hand in hand. The people who are the most vulnerable and most exposed, these are the people who are more likely to be trapped population, who do not have the means to go somewhere else and who do not have the means even to afford that one member of the family goes away. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about how climate fuels human migration. Movement of desperate people across borders is typically seen as a national security issue. But national security can also be at risk when populations in areas suffering from climate instability are unable to seek a better life elsewhere. There's a tendency to separate out you know, our strategic interests with humanitarian interests, and actually I think they can go hand in hand. Francesco Femia is co-founder of the Center for Climate and Security in Washington, D.C. He joins us along with Dina Ionesco, head of the Migration and Climate Change Division at the U.N. Migration Agency in Geneva, to talk about the relationship between migration and security, both national security and the security of migrants themselves. We begin with Dina explaining how experts might determine the current global number of climate refugees. Let's start in a very transparent way. I will tell you how many climate refugees are in the world. We do not know. This is the answer. And it's uh, that we do not know, not because we are failing in trying to understand the issue, but we do not know because behind this notion of climate refugees, in fact, we are hiding many different realities of human mobility and of migration. So I can tell you what we know. We know for sure that climate change impacts human mobility today in the world and a lot of this migration will be internally to countries and not crossing borders and we know that if we continue with these scenarios of climate warming and global warming we'll have millions of people who will be at risk and in risk zones from desertification, uh, sea level rise, extreme heat. But that doesn't mean that this, all these people will become climate migrants or climate refugees. Because migration doesn't work this way. In fact, you have even to have means to move. And many of these people we are talking about are in great poverty and will not necessarily have the means to move. And once again, I think uh, climate refugees is a it's a notion that doesn't have a legal meaning today. It's something that talks to our spirit, to our hearts. We realize that climate change impacts negatively people's movements in the world. But uh, you can't have a status of a climate refugee today in our world. So this is why also we cannot say exactly how much of current migration is due to climate change. It's very multicausal. 
Dina, where are the, the areas with the largest vulnerable populations? We hear a lot of pe people coming out of the Sahel, northern Africa, into the Mediterranean. Where and You've done a, an atlas of environmental migration. Where are the concentrations? Where are the people moving the most, either internally or across borders? So we know that, for instance, in the past 10 years, it, we have over 260 million people who were displaced because of sudden uh, onset disasters, because of storms, because of floods. And the majority of this displacement remains in Asia. But also we have uh, storms, for instance, that have hit very strongly uh, Latin America or the Caribbeans. And there as well, there are impacts. What it's very difficult to know, it's the very slow onset degradation of the environment. So for instance, desertification uh, or sea level rise. And there uh, we see that, for instance, areas that are very hot and um, where there's a lot of drought over the past years, for instance, the Sahel uh, or Sub-Saharan Africa more generally, there has been a lot of migration, but it's combined to other issues of conflict and, for instance, of poverty. We know also that um, from a lot of evidence we have now on sea level rise, that coastal zones, and in particular low-lying delta zones around the world, everywhere where there are deltas, also, for instance, Vietnam or uh, Egypt, or even in Europe, delta areas of the Danube or the Rhine, these are areas that will be uh, strongly impacted. And then we have also the example of very small island states, in particular in the Pacific, but also in the Caribbean, who are very much affected by both uh, sudden onset uh, storms and very slow degradation of the coastal uh, zones, of the ocean reefs, of the acidification of the ocean. And there as well, there's migration uh, from these zones. So we have displacement type of movements, mainly related to sudden events, and then we have different types of migration, very often internal and very much related to development or to conflict in relation to this very slow degradation of the environment. Francesco Femia, 260 million climate refugees, that's a huge number. She said concentration in Asia. How does this affect U.S. national security? Well, I think it's important to note, um, first of all, that any migration uh, out across borders uh, or even in, in within borders uh, is not it by itself a security issue. Uh, I think uh, the main thing we're, we're, that we're concerned about, and I think this is this is how many in the security establishment might might see it here in the United States, is what does that migration do to political stability in a number of areas around the world, and also um, how do host countries uh, react to that migration? How are political forces who might you might describe as ethno-nationalist political forces going to take advantage? Um, of these kinds of dynamics, whether they're real or perceived problems, uh, and and does that disrupt the security environment? And from our perspective, it's a very dangerous dynamic. But I think the uh, the policy recommendation in that context would be to figure out more flexible ways of absorbing that kind of migration, and also making significant investments in climate resilience in places where uh, we are seeing displacement as a result of climate and other factors, uh, rather than you know basically the armed lifeboat response, which is put up walls, uh, implement draconian immigration uh, standards, uh, because ultimately, even when walls, quote unquote, work, 
uh, that leaves those countries where people are trapped unstable, politically unstable, and that can have security consequences um, uh, as well. And so I think the response right now that we're seeing in general is the wrong one, but I have hope that uh, cooler heads will prevail. I interviewed Ray Mabus when he was Secretary of the Navy for most of the, if not all of the Obama administration, and he talked about how the U.S. Marines are often the first in to, uh, for, when places are, uh, there's a big disaster response, whether it's the tsunami out of Indonesia, et cetera. How is looking at the prospect for more migration, how is it affecting U.S. military doctrine, its presence around the world, thinking that the Marines are often, uh, at least for the U.S., the first ones in? Yeah, I think as Dina was mentioning before, with quick onset disasters, it is starting to uh, enter into the thinking of the U.S. military quite a bit. I know U.S. Pacific Command, for example, uh, going back to when Admiral Locklear uh, was the commander there, um, called climate change the greatest long-term threat to the Asia-Pacific region, for example. Um, and I think what the military is concerned about is uh, if we're seeing more of these disasters, uh, greater disasters that are driving um, you know, people to, to either you know, have to migrate or, or to have to be um, um, protected. Or, or, or supported through humanitarian assistance. Uh, if these are happening more often, they're happening simultaneously potentially as we're getting cascading disasters as one you know, major disaster leads right into another before recovery is possible, that this might be a serious strain uh, even on uh, the, the U.S.'s ability uh, to, uh, to deliver humanitarian assistance while other disasters are also might be happening in other places, including in the United States where the U.S. military has been increasingly called upon to support uh, you know, state forces and national guardsmen uh, in in fighting fires it's, and, and other th natural disasters. And so um, so I think that's a big concern. And I do think the U.S. military is, is planning for that new world. I think right now they think it's something that, that they can deal with. But actually, when you look at, you know, the, the trends for climate change uh, and the likely displacement that's going to happen in the future, when you look at sea level rise trends coupled with storm trends, uh, then I think there's a real concern uh, that uh, the U.S. military's ability to deliver humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, or HADR, will be strained, um, particularly when you have a number of other warfighting missions on their plates, etc. Um, it's a scary new world, and I think uh, the U.S. military recognizes that. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Francesco Femia, co-founder of the Center for Climate and Security, and Dina Ionesco, head of the Migration and Climate Change Division at the UN Migration Agency in Geneva. Dina Ionesco, um, we talked earlier about trapped populations. Uh, who leaves? Is it the really rich because you can afford to leave or the really poor because you can't afford to stay and the middle income people stay? What, what, how does the income you know, uh, scale relate to people's decisions and ability to stay or go? Yes, of course. That's a very important question we have uh, when we, we look into migration uh, trends and uh, uh, strategy at family level, at community level. Um, and when we add in the climate change and the environmental issue, it makes this equation even more complicated because you realize how much migration, it's also about perceptions. Uh, and that there are moments that the decision, it's like a turning point for a family. And that the environment, more and more, it's this 
turning point. We see this, for example, in countries like Mali, uh, where the rainfall patterns have changed and it has impacted agriculture. People lose jobs and that leads to migration then. Uh, we saw this a lot in Americas uh, when you see uh, changing water resources and access to water resources. And this is the turning point, the tipping point where a family decides to move. So you have examples where families will decide to just send one person ahead and very often it will be an internal migration so there will be a strategy of sending maybe one brother or the mother or one person from the family household to the city uh, as a first stage of migration and then it can lead to a future form of migration that will be, for instance, international once the person has achieved already an income in the city. So it's a very nuanced and complex story to define how uh, people will decide to, at one point, that migration is the response uh, to their situation. And very often, you need indeed resources to move. So it's true that the people who are the most vulnerable and most exposed and in the poverty trap, I think these are the people who are more likely to be trapped population, who do not have the means to go somewhere else and who do not have the means even to afford that one member of the family goes away. No one identifies themselves as a climate refugee. They're, re they're, they're often fleeing something else and climate may be a, a factor, but people don't identify as climate refugees. In fact, refu climate refugees don't have any status under the 1951 Refugee Convention. Do you think that that should be reopened to include climate migrants or would that potentially backfire and weaken that con important convention? Yes, it's, it's completely true that uh, currently you cannot become a climate refugee under international law and that the Geneva Convention does not provide for uh, persecution by climate change. That does not exist. You have to show persecution for other reasons and very often it's persecution by your own country. Uh, that's why you need a third country protection or international protection. Uh, from all the work we've been doing now with the International Organization for Migration, it's quite an ironic story. We have done so much work to identify the evidence on attributing some of the migration issues to climate change impacts and adverse impacts. And we are now convinced that it's really the case that the environment uh, degradation and climate change are drivers of migration, but very often combined with other drivers. But now we are not necessarily saying that changing the refugee definition and the Geneva Convention is the good response to this. First of all, because as a, we, we discussed before, a lot of this migration is internal. So it's under the responsibility of the country. People are not crossing borders. They are not asking for third country protection, which is what defines, in fact, that refugee protection. And second of all, uh, the problem is also that it's very difficult to isolate climate change uh, and environmental drivers from the other drivers. So we might have very good intentions to create new visas or new protection regimes just for people moving because of climate change. But will they be able to prove that and how? And would not 
this becoming at the end maybe backfiring for people who might not be able to prove that uh, or who are in deep poverty situation and where the environment has a strong impact on their movement, on their mobility, but it's not the main factor. So this is why we are much more encouraging uh, migration policy and practices responses that are not necessary about a status as a refugee, but more fluidity in migration options, more regular pathways for migration, and more areas for countries to be prepared to receive people, for instance, for temporary time, for a temporary visa, uh, humanitarian visa. This can be responses to people moving because of the climate change and the environment. And I'm saying this in a very personal way as a former um, child refugee myself. I, I benefited from the refugee status. So uh, as a child uh, running away with my family uh, for political reasons in Romania, and I'm saying this because I think many people do not want to be defined as refugees because there are still negative images about refugees having lost everything and um, having to start completely something new and a not necessarily positive image. And I think I'm fighting also this idea. I think that whatever your status on um, migration, uh, people moving, uh, it's very empowering as well to, to start a new life somewhere and to, to build something new and bring with you your own culture and learn a new one, I think it's extremely feasible. So I really think in the context of climate change and of the environment, this might not be the best solution we can offer to people who have to move because of these drivers. Francesco Femi, I've learned in this conversation that most climate migration is internal within countries. In the United States, there's a few villages, uh, small populations, indigenous people in Alaska and Louisiana that have already begun to move because of sea level rise. That's pretty clear. When you look at migration within the United States, will it be slow and manageable, if not orderly? Or do, is there a potential for rapid and disruptive migration within the United States because of it's either too hot, not enough water, hurricanes, etc.? Well, I actually think we're already seeing migration in response to um, quick onset disasters. We saw this with Hurricane Katrina, which displaced a number of people uh, that had to uh, essentially migrate. Uh, we've seen this more, more recently with other storms uh, and also slow onset. Um, you don't often hear about it, um, but I'm actually here in eastern Maryland and at, and at the southern tip of, of eastern Maryland. You have entire communities uh, who are being affected by sea level rise uh, who are slowly uh, but quite surely uh, moving. Um, you have you know whole areas of Dorchester County, for example, uh, where um, you can't really get public services if, you're, if you live near the coastline and they're not keeping up roads, et cetera. So people are slowly moving out. Um, so I think it's going to be a combination of both slow onset displacement from sea level rise, storm surges that displace communities uh, where it's impossible to rebuild. Uh, and I think that's actually why you're, you're starting to see some bipartisan uh, sort of 
um, collaboration on, on at least accepting that climate change is a serious issue uh, and starting to try to figure out some solutions. We might not be seeing that from the White House, but we're seeing it in the U.S. Congress, for example. And if you're a politician in Florida, for example, uh, and and you're a Republican, uh, it's it's pretty impossible at this point to deny that climate change is happening. And I think this is the case, you know, for a number of coastal states and also states out in the West that are that are facing wildfires. And so I think you'll you, you're already seeing migration here in the United States. It's often not called migration. Um, and I think there's a tendency to think, well, that that's not really happening here. We can't have internal internally displaced people in the United States, can we? Uh, but it's happening. And I think it's going to happen more and more uh, if something's not done about it. Francesco Femia, co-founder of the Center for Climate and Security, along with Dina Ionesco, head of the Migration and Climate Change Division at the UN Migration Agency, on how climate change fuels mass migration. This is Climate One. Coming up, connecting climate change and U.S. immigration policy. Changing laws in the U.S. to accommodate the inevitable reality of more people on the move is also part of what should be a much more realistic understanding and practice of shared international responsibility. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One records many of our conversations with a live audience at our modern and green new home on the waterfront in San Francisco. When you're in town, I invite you to join us. Our programs are open to the public and listed on climateone.org. We're talking about the political impacts of climate-fueled migration. Oscar Chacon is co-founder and executive director of Alianza Americas, a network of Latin American and Caribbean immigrant organizations in the United States. I asked him how he gets people to connect the abstract climate threat with more immediate, more personal immigration concerns. People in Central American countries, you know, if you actually ask them, why did you feel forced to leave your country? They would not tell you, oh, because of climate change. They will tell you the conditions that they experienced that led to a moment in their life where there was no other option but to leave their countries. And those conditions, when you begin to ask more details, that's when you actually discover the connection between changing weather patterns in their own countries, you know, changing dramatically the way people used to grow their food in the countryside, speaking of rural communities. And for more people in the U.S. to understand that, uh, it makes it easier to actually give some practical meaning on how we can actually work on building intersections that are meaningful in as far as getting people protected, but also in as far as changing our own system of laws in the U.S. A lot of immigrants here, of course, send remittances back to the home country. That's partly why they they came here, and some go back. Uh, does the climate disruption, the disruption of uh, agriculture, coffee, et cetera, does that affect how much money they are sending back or where they're sending money to? Because, you know, there, there is that important flow of money back home. Absolutely. Remittances play such an important role in countries like Mexico. Any of the Central American countries are also the same story. And what is interesting about remittances as they relate to crisis in the home countries is that they follow a counterintuitive behavior from a financial flows point of view. For example, Direct investment, private direct investment, tends to keep away from countries that are undergoing crisis. 
remittances behave exactly in the opposite way. When crisis hit, you know, when there is a huge storm or a serious situation of drought in Mexico or Central American countries, what you see is more money being sent because people want to be more helpful to their relatives. So in that respect, as I said, remittances, financial flows are very different uh, than any other kind of financial flows that you can think of. Scientists predict that there will be more disruption of agriculture, that weather is getting more uh, volatile, storms are getting more extreme. That's going to affect agricultural production. What does that say to you in terms of um, the future flow of people north? Can you envision whether that flow would be so much, so massive that the U.S. might need dare I say, you know, some kind of barrier wall to kind of tighten on the border because there were so many people coming north? Well, I mean, I think that Central American countries, southern uh, Mexico are bound to become more critical geographic places in the planet in as far as climate change episodes and how these will actually affect you know, very deeply the lives of people to the point that more and more people will indeed come to the conclusion that there is no livelihood for them in their countries but to go seek opportunities abroad. And when what that really means in practical terms is trying to come to the U.S. because that's the country they have had a historical relationship with. I yet don't believe that we are too late. I think that there is a still work to be done in countries of origin to actually prepare you know, for the likely event that there will be even more severe uh, change, changes coming down the pipe in terms of climate change. And in this respect, I mean, I happen to believe that what we need to do is change our existing laws having to do with humanitarian protection to acknowledge once and for all that climate change is likely to become a chief reason why more people will be forced to flee the places they were born and the places they love. Uh, and, and frankly, I think that that's a much better proposition uh, than to actually build walls that in the end have proven historically to be very ineffective in as far as stopping flows of people when those flows can perfectly be channeled in a different way. During uh, President Clinton, there was 12 million people deported uh, out of the United States. During the second President Bush, about 10 million. President Obama, 5 million. I'm not sure how many has happened under President Trump, but that's quite a lot of people. President Trump gets criticized a lot for sending people out of the country. But 12 million people, you know, that's that's more than two times what happened under Obama. So your, your take on sort of deportation, uh, is it really as bad today uh, as, as it's made out to be? Well, I think that we need to look at the metrics. I think that you may be citing numbers that are actually mixing up what are called returns from the U.S.-Mexico border versus actual deportations, meaning people who were already settled in the U.S., they are captured and then sent back. Uh, there has been changes over the years in the way, how, in the way we count uh, how many people were sent back, so to speak, to their countries, because I believe that the number you cited for the uh, Clinton administration, it's a combined number of people deported from within the country plus people that were actually sent back 
from the border back into Mexico. And in this respect, I mean, I definitely believe that the question of deportations as a whole uh, is actually a mistaken policy from the perspective that it has meant spending very large sums of money, you, uh, your money, my money, taxpayers' money, in, a, in an operation that in the end does not address the fundamental question of why have people left their countries. And I think we need to work much more creatively in addressing those inequities in Mexico, in Central American countries, including those related to climate change or climate justice. And then we will be able to find a much more healthy, humane way of bringing equilibrium to the question of human mobility. Many immigrants, of course, are undocumented and unable to vote. Many are and have have obtained uh, legal status to vote. We're in an election year. Um, there's often concerns that, that um, you know, immigrants or Latinos don't vote at high, high percentages. Is that going to be different in 2020, given the stakes of the issues that you're talking about? It's a still too early to say, uh, but you are correct that people who happen to be Hispanic or Latino, you know, in origin in the U.S. And there will be nearly 32 million people who are born in the U.S. or naturalized U.S. citizens of 18 years or older in age who will be potentially able to vote in the elections in 2020. However, will they be able to come out in larger numbers than before? That is a question that, in my view, depends a lot on number one, what are candidates proposing, you know, and to what degree what they are proposing relate to the reality of people who are Hispanic, Latinos in the U.S.? And number two, who is the candidate? I mean, if the candidate happens to be somebody they definitely don't feel a connection with, uh, I think it's going to be difficult to predict that there will be a surpassing of the president so far, which is 49.9% participation rate by Latino voters, which was reached in 2008. Would Julian Castro as vice president change that? It may, but it will really depend uh, both, as I said, I mean, I gave you two, two answers in my previous answer. One is what are they really offering that is yeah. relevant to Latino voters? And two, of course, who heads the ticket? I don't believe that just having a Latino by itself is a magic bullet uh, to get more Latinos engaged. I think it will depend on how much money gets to be invested in Latino-led organizations really doing the hard, heavy lifting to get people to come out. Oscar Chacon, co-founder and executive director of Alianza Americas. You're listening to Climate One. Lauren Markham is a writer reporting on youth, migration, and the environment. She came to appreciate how climate amplified the immediate causes of migration after spending time in southern Guatemala. What I was looking at a couple of years ago specifically is the intersection between violence, uh, climate change, poverty, and migration. So I was in what's called the Dry Corridor of Central America, um, a couple of hours south of Guatemala City, um, in an area that is has been for you know years and years and years very drought prone but uh climate change has hit this region particularly hard and it's shouldering the impacts of climate change much more than many of the surrounding communities 
And the region is a huge coffee grower. So the main source of income there, I think over 90% of families relied in some form on coffee. Mm. Um, the, the thing is that uh, when drought comes in, um, that weakens the plants and makes those plants more prone to plague. So there was a, a huge incidence of coffee rust, which decimated and destroyed a lot of the plants, meaning that a lot of the people there didn't have anything to live off of anymore, and that forced people out of their homes and uh, many to the United States. And that La Roya is, is affecting coffee all over the world. All over the world, yeah. And so La Roya comes in, driven, amplified partly by, by climate. Mm-hmm. What choices do some of these people face, and are there any particular individuals or stories you can tell us their story? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, essentially, when any place where there's a cash crop, that's uh, it's, a, it's a non-diversified economy, right? So any place there's a cash crop, when that cash, cash crop is decimated, that means that there's n- there's no fallback plan, right? There's nothing that we can kind of do tomorrow in order to feed our families and to buy our food. So what happened was a number of those people were forced into the city um, where there are higher instances of, of gang violence. Um, and in Guatemala City, people were also uh, uh, struggling to find jobs because it's it's a challenging economy in the first place. So people were either forced to the city or forced to the United States to you know attempt to start a life over. The thing is, going to the United States requires taking out essentially a, a massive debt in order to pay someone to help you get there. Um, so there was actually a really excellent report by Jonathan Blitzer um, of The New Yorker who wrote about the sort of cycle of climate change, uh, migration, and debt in which people are trying to go to the United States. Once they make it there, they end up in you know thousands and thousands of dollars in debt um, and having to work triple time to send this home such that families don't lose their homes or their, their land. And in many cases, there are families who are losing their land and losing what, what little they have. And then you mentioned uh, the intersection of poverty, climate, and violence. Yes. Uh, and we know there's pretty strong research that rising temperatures actually increases violence. Mm. People, when humans get hot, they get angry. There's more fights. There's yeah. there's different, uh, there's more conflict at the individual scale and, and country, you know, mm-hmm. group scale and even nation state scale, uh, more fights at ballparks. All the, it's, yeah, it's really right. strong data. So tell, talk about the intersection between sort of violence and, and you know, we always hear a lot about fleeing from gangs right. in this area. Yeah. So um, the the Northern Triangle of Central America, which is a region that includes Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, is ha- and has been for decades struggling with entrenched community gangs um, and entrenched community violence. Um, and in this case, I would say that it's not so much the rising temperatures that are impacted that are directly impacting the violence, but rather. Um, the violence in Central America is an outgrowth of the Civil War years and and the immense trauma um, and sort of decimation to um, to families, um, to people's psyches, to the economy. Um, but gang violence in the Northern Triangle of Central America is also uh, inextricably linked to poverty. That people are joining gangs um, either by force, as in someone will come and with a gun to your head and say, "If you don't join, I will kill you, or I'll rape your mother, or I'll kill someone in your family." Um, or often by force of circumstances, because there's no other way for them to find um, b- belonging on a psychic level, but but even more sort of immediate and dire, no way to eat or no, they don't have anywhere to live. So and that relationship between poverty and, and gangs is huge. And climate change um, in, a, in countries that are incredibly, you know, highly agrarian, climate change is only leaving fewer options, right, for farmers and fewer opportunities for people to lead any kind of realistic subsistence life. So I wrote a book called The Far Away Brothers that 
follows the story of two identical twins from El Salvador who are fleeing gang violence. One um, gets on the wrong side of the wrong guy in town and has to leave uh, pretty quickly. Um, and then quickly the family realizes that twin number two, because he looks exactly like twin number one, has to follow, you know, in his footsteps because he's at risk of being killed. Um, and they're in a really rural part of El Salvador and their father owns some land and they're subsistence farmers, um, nine kids in the family. He's an incredibly expert farmer and he's managed this land his, his whole life. Um, he's getting older, but he's managing this land. And when there's some extra tomatoes or some extra beans, the, the mother will take it down and, you know, from their rural area to town and try to sell the extras. Um, but I have this small piece in my book that felt like sort of an extra mention, um, at the time of writing it, but it feels to me more and more over the past couple of years, like it's almost the, the most important piece of the book, um, where the, the father, um, I, I went to visit the family and the father, uh, sort of pointed to a, a basin of some of his recent crops, um, and he, and, and he points to them and I said, oh, are those oranges? They were sort of back in the back. So they were at a distance. And he said, oh, no, no, those are tomatoes. I don't know what's happening, but this year my tomatoes are all orange. And we have so many of them. They're not horrible tasting, but they're not great. And we have so many of them and no one will buy them at the market. No one will buy these tomatoes. And I just, I can't possibly understand what's going wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and he thinks that it must be him, right? He, he thinks that it must be something he's doing wrong, even though he's planted his tomatoes the same way forever. And that was compelling to me because I think it speaks to the fact that um, in many of the places that are most adversely impacted by climate change and where climate change is increasingly uh, a push factor when it comes to migration, people don't have a lot of education about what climate change is um, and what it means and, and what's causing it. And there's sort of like a heartbreaking, you know, piece of that tale as though, uh, which is that this, this man sort of thinks it's something that he must be doing wrong. Um, so you've also uh, interviewed people in Gambia, Pakistan, elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Are there differences in terms of either the language that people use or their mm -hmm. relationship to nature or how they how they understand climate change in their way? Because it is such a global problem. It's like, oh, yeah, that's an industrial problem. We have clean air here. That's mm -hmm. not a problem here. Right. That's, you know, we're a poor country. That's a, I don't know, do you right. encounter that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess my my experience has been in interviewing um, people kind of in the throes of migration all over the world is that I've never met anyone who has said I'm a climate refugee. And most of the time, people, when they give their reasons for why they're migrating, uh, poverty tends to come up or the lack of an ability to make a living somewhere. And I have also found that often when you keep pressing against that and you keep asking, well, tell me what was it like and what had changed and why all of a sudden we're, we're you know, wh why now? You know, why not five years ago? And people will say, oh, well, you know, I talked to some young men in Gambia those, and, and he said, you know, well, it's, it's harder to farm now because there's more sand in our soil. You know, and so this is not a young man who's saying I am a climate refugee or I'm a climate migrant. He's saying it, because of climate change, and I'm not using that word, right, but he's essentially saying, because of climate change, I am having to leave. But I am defining that as poverty or as an inability to make a life in my home. So then what's the solution to this? If climate change is going to have drive more refugees out of places because of poverty amplified by, by climate economic development to try to keep them in their home country, or, or what is the solution? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm so happy you asked that because I think we often talk when it comes to migration about what we do once the migration has happened. And the important thing to do, right, is focus on the root causes. Most people do not want to leave their homes, right? Most people do not want to set off uh, with very little on their backs to a foreign land to start over. 
So to me, uh, one of the most important interventions is having like global climate solutions um, as well as local climate solutions and interventions to make it possible for people to live. And I don't mean sort of, you know, barely live, but actually like survive and thrive in their home countries. Lauren Markham, author of The Faraway Brothers, Two Young Migrants in the Making of an American Life on the Challenges of Climate-Fueled Migration. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Justin Norton. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. Mm-hmm.